you know, oh god, my hair is terrible today. Um, you know, yeah, it's, me too. Uh, it's a <laughs> This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, we wrap up the November 3rd election, looking at results and the narratives emerging about those results at the federal level and back here at home at the state and local level. We also take a hard look at what it may take to defeat Trumpism over the coming months and years, how we avoid interparty fractures, and especially the need for activists to stay involved as we shift into at least partial offense. That's ahead. Hello, 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 everybody. So with the election behind us, mostly, uh, I thought we would convene one of our pre-election panels to break down the most important election of our lifetimes. And so joining us first is Will Casey. He is communications director for the Washington State Democrats. Hello to you, Will. Hey, Stefan. Great to be with you as always. It is good to have you with us as always. And Kat Pipkin is on the steering committee for Indivisible Eastside as well as the Washington Indivisible Network. She is one of my partners in the Indivisible Town Hall series. And she is awesome. And hello to you, Kat. Hey, glad to be here. So, and you, you, you are awesome as well. Well, you're both dear friends. Um, so, listen, there's a lot to unpack uh, from the presidential race all the way down to you know referendums here at the state level. And, and I want to talk about some of the larger themes uh, that are that are playing out, and some of the narratives that are emerging. See if we can kind of break those apart a little bit. But I would be remiss if I did not start with the unvarnished good news that Joe Joseph R. Biden is going to be the 46th president. Of the United States, um, I, I feel like I should like pop some champagne or something uh, to, 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 you know, sort of uh, commemorate this occasion. But I, I just, I think instead, I will just give each of you the floor for a couple minutes to just talk briefly about what Biden's victory means to you. Kat, you want to start? Sure. You know, I almost felt like it was, um, you know, VE Day or something uh, on the day they finally called it. Right. I, I guess myself and millions of other people were frantically, you know, tallying votes and electoral college commitments. And the day they finally called it, it was it, the most profound thing I can say is that it was a sense of relief. Like, like I felt like we were toppling a Lenin statue or something. We were, it was like, it, finally the worst part of this can be over and we can start to rebuild. I love that. Toppling the Lenin statue is, is a perfect uh, visual in my head. Um, and, you know, we're still stuck in the middle of a lot of the the end game BS that's happening uh, with, with the Trump camp right now. We don't have to really get into that. But, Will, I'll just give you the floor also to talk about, you know, where, where, where you sit and what your feelings were uh, when it was becoming very clear that, that Biden was going to was going to win. I think I have to echo Kat's sentiment. It was just like an overwhelming sense of relief. I mean, for me, um, you know, I graduated high school in the year that uh, Barack Obama first won the presidency, right? And so for the last 12 years, it's been truly a disconcerting, um, you know, national political conversation that we've been having as, you know, we've seen the sort of the backlash to that and then how it's manifested with Trump. And I think, you know, obviously there's, a lot of people who still voted for him after having seen his uh, horrendous performance on perhaps the greatest challenge that uh, any president has faced in, in my lifetime anyway. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's even more of us who came out to say that, you know, we, we deserve better. And I think that that sort of uh, is the 
the first step back from the brink. And that's, that's yeah. a big relief as, as someone sort of looking into like, what is the next 10 years going to hold? And, and having a reason to be optimistic, even a little bit is, is, is relieving after four years of, of, uh, depression and frustration. Oh God, here's to that. Yeah. And you know, we'll be uh, talking about, I want to talk both uh, with both of you about the issues that you raise, particularly around Trumpism, what that means and what represents. So I want to, before we move on from this, I want to give a special shout out to everybody here in the state of Washington for phone banking, text banking, sending letters, postcards, doing all the groundwork here. And I want to give a special shout out to my mom, Jan Cox. She set a record for our Indivisible group. She made over 1,600 calls in one month in October. She just blew the lid off the record. So congratulations to my mom. Uh, So in addition to winning back the blue wall uh, in the Midwest, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, we also managed to flip Arizona and Georgia blue. Now, there are a lot of factors here, but it seems like the ground game really was the differentiating factor, particularly in Georgia with Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight. Will, uh, from your experience, can you talk a little bit about the importance of the ground game, particularly in Georgia, as you see it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that this election is obviously it was clear and decisive but it was also very close in the states that mattered right and so there's literally nothing that you can say oh that didn't make a difference right every single phone call every single text message every single you know um for the people who are doing it safely door knock um made a difference in this election um and i think that particularly in georgia what you've seen is the result of not just the typical election year you know 10 week sprint um, to the finish line, but a decade of sustained organizing in communities, explaining to them in real consistent uh, messaging that's easy for folks to understand what an impact their vote can have, not just on you know the national scene, but in their daily lives, right? And I think that that's what we need to be focusing on as we look forward to the next decade of, of organizing is making sure that we're maintaining those commitments, staying in the field, talking to people, organizing their communities, because I mean, and we can talk more about this later, but I think that the biggest frustration that I saw on election night was just how many people are living in an information and and news um, environment and ecosystem that just doesn't give them accurate information. Um, And I think that the, you know, in community organizing is the only way to really get around that, uh, you know, propaganda machine. When when we close our conversation, I would like to end there. I'll just billboard that and and let people know that, like, I think this is really the coin of the realm. And I think people like Beto and I think people like Stacey Abrams really get this. And they understand that, like you say, you can't helicopter into these places every two to four years and just target specific voters that you need to win. You need to build a durable ground game. So I want to get both of your thoughts on how we will do that. Um, Before we move on, I will mention just for listeners about the Georgia Senate race uh, and the runoffs. Um, a lot of people have been contacting the show about how to get involved. We, we, you know, the, the, the enthusiasm is so high, and I understand it. I feel it, too. We're going to have more information shortly. I'm getting some conflicting information right now from uh, from people all up and down from Georgia, from national. So what I'm going to say right now to people is donations, donations, donations. They they do yes. need money there. Uh, donate to Fair Fight for sure. Donate to the two campaigns, and we will get back to you when we have more information on that. So let's move next and talk about the House. Now, Democrats are going to retain control of the House, but it is not going to be as big of a margin as we had before, and it's disappointing 
because I think Democrats were anticipating picking up something like 15 seats uh, to add to their margin. But now it looks like the Republicans are projected to pick up eight seats. So a lot of people are blaming progressives for this. Uh, for and, and in particular, House moderates like Abigail Spanberger are saying defund the police and socialism are to blame. Um, it's an ugly narrative. Uh, Kat, I would love your thoughts on this. Uh, she's in Virginia seven, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we need to look at uh, take a step back and look at the picture overall. First of all, I don't think it was universal that we were thinking we would pick up a bunch of House seats. I think people made a strategic decision to focus energies on Congress and on the White House and to de-emphasize to some degree some of the House races. So I'm not surprised we lost some seats. But to Virginia's seventh in particular, we need to remember that that's a red district. It's always been a red district. It only flipped for the first time in 30 years uh, in 2018 when she took the seat. Um, Virginia, as everybody is probably aware, had a court-mandated redistricting because their re- because their districting was so gerrymandered, so gerrymandered that even the courts finally said, "Good Lord." Um, what the seventh picked up was a bunch of those red voters from the third, which was the district that was mandated to redistrict. So, A, she's in a hard district. She's always going to be in a hard district. But taking a look at, at, at the comment that she made about, uh, about uh, defund the police and so forth, I, I think that we as Democrats and as progressives have a strong hand to play here. I think we need to work on our messaging and reemphasize again that this is really, this is the politics of racial resentment playing out. I think, I think we need to call it what it is. The people's angst and fear over defund the police isn't about worrying about public safety. It's worrying about their place in the racial hierarchy. So I think a lot of the arguments that we're hearing are opportunities for us to to take a deep dive in and look at our messaging and come together under what we all believe are democratic values. And, you know, when you and I were speaking in preparation for this, you mentioned that we ought not uh, see this as cause to to run away from from our core values because, case in point, Katie Porter Katie Porter is an extraordinarily red district in California. She ran on very progressive values, and she won. Yep. Yep. So, uh, Will, I'll just kind of turn the same question over to you, and I know you have a lot of thoughts about this, but the, the first <laughs> and foremost is, I think it's very important, and you and I talked about this the other day, it's really important for us as progressives to push back against this narrative, lest it calcify that, you know, things like defund the police and socialism are the things that sunk the entire, uh, you know, the, 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 they were responsible for, you know, so, so many losses in the House. So how do we begin to dismantle that narrative? Well, I think there's there's two things here, right? So the first, and, and you know, there's the structural element of you know that we are a big tent party and we're kind of forced to be that way because of, frankly, the undemocratic nature of the overall like U.S. federal government. Uh, I'll get to that in a second, but I think that the primary thing, and you know, if Abigail Spanberger were on this call, I would say this thing, straight, you know, say the same straight to her face. But like every politician is responsible for running their own race. Right. I mean, what I do in Washington state doesn't have anything to do with what other people are doing across the country. Right. Um, And we saw those same attacks here. You know, we saw the Washington state Republican Party 
you know, trying to smear our candidates with defund the police messaging um, when, you know, just for going to a Black Lives Matter rally as if like expressing the opinion that, you know, every American has a right to not be, uh, you know, assaulted or treated differently by those that are, are paid to you know, serve and protect us um, is something that's radical, um, which it's not, right? Like, this is just basic human rights that we're expecting everyone to get um, treated with. So I think that this is something that, you know, it's what they're going to do. Republicans are always going to lie. And I think that we just have to be smart about making sure that we are involved in these communities and that we, you know, every candidate is doing their work to make sure that they have an independent reputation among their constituents. And they understand like what you're doing in Congress so that when these attacks come out, you know, they seem as absurd as, uh, you know, the nonsense that uh, the Jacob Walls of the world tried to smear our, you know, presidential candidates with, right? Like you need to establish that reputation. And yeah, it's hard the further down the ballot you get um, to have an independent reputation because there's just not as much media coverage, but you're right about Katie Porter. And I think that it's, um, you know, more of a reality of this uh, structural situation, which I said at the top is that, you know, because of gerrymandering and because of the way that the population is distributed in the Senate um, and because of the Electoral College, we are always going to need both candidates that can you know, appeal to a middle of the road electorate in a swing district and you know, very energized uh, you know, progressive candidates in safe blue districts like we have here in Washington with Congresswoman Jayapal and, and Congressman uh, you know, Smith who do the work to turn out voters in their districts so that we can win statewide, right? Because, I mean, like, you don't win the presidency without Rashida Tlaib um, and Ilhan Omar turning out their districts in the way that they did in um, Minnesota and, and, and Michigan, but you also don't win the House without people like Abigail Spanberger, right? And so I think that this, you know, rush to find one solution that describes exactly why we fit here, like, it, it, it's, not, it's not accurate to the results on the ground. I completely agree with everything that you said, um, and I would also just say the last thing that we want to do here in the Democratic Party is start to reinforce some of the GOP talking points against us, and I think that's something exactly. we need to be very, very careful about. But also, part of the reason I think we we had the blue wave in 2018 was because you were able to uh, craft messages that were more specific to the district that they were targeting. So, for example, Abigail Spanberger could run on the things that she wanted to run on there, and AOC could run on the things that she wanted to run on in in New York. And the, I, I think, hopefully, and I'm just keeping my fingers crossed here, that as we move into 2022 and we're looking at midterms, that we remember those lessons and learn how to to really nuance the, the, the messaging around campaigns that are going to be most effective. Um, because otherwise, um, <laughs> we're looking at, at party splits. And, and I think we're going to be looking at that anyway as we go into the, the next couple of years and trying to get some sort of an agenda done. For example, if we take the Senate, and you know, God willing, we do, we progressives are then going to have to pivot and start pushing hard um, for our small D democratic reforms, guaranteeing voters' rights, uh, court expansion, DC statehood, on and on. I, I dearly hope we get to have that fight. But when we do, if we do, we're going to need to shift our focus away from the GOP to the more moderate members of the Democratic Party. We need to stiffen their resolve on this. And, and I'm wondering, Kat, how do you think about that problem? I think that 
Probably. Uh, again, I'm not a member, so I don't know. But uh, I think you treat it the way you treat every tough discussion and you go back to shared values. You talk about the values that we share, whether it's in eastern Washington or the greater Puget Sound area. We believe that people deserve a living wage for work. We believe in equal pay for equal work. Uh, we believe that we need to root out and eliminate systemic bias. Um, we believe that everybody deserves a fair shot at housing. Uh, everybody deserves to have good, good medical care, etc. So uh, those are universal values that we all, that every single Democrat ascribes to. And I think if we get back to that and find a way of creating a, a true governable majority in, in both chambers, that we will win. Because, I mean, look at things like universal background checks. The only thing that's ever stopped that from getting through Congress is Congress. It's as close to a universally approved policy as we've ever seen in the United States. More than 90% of Americans of all, of all stripes agree that we need universal background checks. The only thing stopping us is ourselves. So we need to get there. We have, you know, our, our platform policies are, are broadly popular. Um, is, is it a matter of salesmanship, Will? I, I mean, is it too, well, really? I mean, like, how do we successfully articulate a progressive agenda and win? Is it is it a PR campaign? What, what do you think? Well, so I think I want to go back to uh, framing this response in, in the way that you were talking about how do we stiffen the resolve of our more moderate sure. members, right? Because I think that there's a little bit of uh, confusion going on in the way that we describe some of those those folks, right? Um, I think that you can think of them being moderate in their ideology, right? Thinking that we need to take more incremental steps, that you know, big sudden changes are probably not something that they want to go for, and that's fine. Right, like people are going to have various uh, philosophies on how that we can you know, improve people's lives, improve people's lives. But I mean, I think that we can all <laughs> reasonably be certain of the fact that people that are democratic elected officials in this day and age are people who are trying to make a difference in a positive way. Right, but I think that um, something we need to make sure we are on guard about, uh, especially when it comes to specifically the issue of voting rights. Um, and I think that, Kat, actually, um, this is the one issue where you don't want to frame it like every other issue, because this is bigger than every other issue, right? Like, I think that what this is our opportunity to continue the conversation we've been having about the dangers of authoritarianism in the Trump administration, because frankly, um, as someone who's going to be living in this country for the next 50 years, hopefully, uh, that was very concerning, what we just got through and what we're continuing to live through right now. Um, and I think that that hopefully is as radicalizing in terms of the uh, need to live in a representative democracy for our members of Congress, that we can show them that we are here for that principle. We are here to support them. We're here to knock on doors for them. We will donate to their campaigns. We're going to do the same level of energy that we did in 2018 um, to make sure that every single American citizen in this country has the right to vote. And it's not something that you know, can be held up like the Republican Party did in Florida, where they disenfranchised over a million potential voters um, after 60-something percentage uh, points of the electorate approved reinstating returning citizens' voting rights, right? Like, this is a actual power grab, and I think the thing that we need to be on guard about is moderate members thinking that, oh, you know, this seems, you know, the, the D.C. press is going to think of this as a radical move, and so I've got to position myself as somehow in between that proposal and the, you know, minority rule Mitch McConnell is trying to institute, but that's just not the case, right? 
Like the radical situation here is the way the Republican Party has behaved for the last four years and arguably for a lot longer than that. Um, but particularly since the Merrick Garland, um, you know, controversy and ever since then, you know, as far as I can tell, we just they are not a responsible co-governing partner. Right. They're not here to try and make people's lives better. And more importantly, they do not respect uh, the opinions of the vast majority of the American people. Um, and that's just not acceptable. And we can't live in a system like that for very much longer. Or we're just not going to ever get any policy done. So it is framing. It is. It is. VR. Yeah. It's framing, but it's also commitment and activism and sustained engagement. Of right? course. Because, yeah. And I don't mean know, to be like, a glib. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. No, I, I, but I want to be serious about this point because we can't even in our own minds think of this as like, oh, we need our moderate members to take a risk and do some do the right thing, even though it might be hard for them to get reelected about. No. This is something where if they, you know, stand with us, we will stand with them and it will actually be easier for them to get reelected because they will the whole country will see them doing the right thing and it will put the Republicans on their back foot and it will make it a lot easier to get people engaged in 2022. You know, you just mentioned Merrick Garland and I uh, I hear tell the scuttlebutt is that he's being considered for attorney general, which I just think is <laughs> chef's kiss. Oh, God. Yes, so, great. That would be such so before we move on to state races, I, I do want to talk about Trumpism. Uh, writ large. I, I know we were hoping for a repudiation, a solid repudiation of Trumpism. Um, almost 75 million Americans voted for Trump. Five million more voted for Biden. That's the good news. Um, but the people who voted for Trump had four years of knowing who he was, knowing what he stood for, and they voted for him anyway. I intend to do a full show about this topic, so we don't have to go too terribly deep into this, but I would love to get your thoughts, each of you. This is something I keep thinking about. What actions can we take over the next weeks, years, and months to delegitimize everything that Trump managed to legitimize? The racism, the lies, the, the violence, the hatred. Uh, Kat, I'll, I'll start with you on this. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Step one, you address the wealth gap in this country. Uh, we are facing the most extreme levels of income inequality since the Great Depression. Never before in America have we had this level of wealth inequality, uh, where the poor are actually doing exactly the same as they were 30 years ago. And the middle class is actually doing worse than they were 30 years ago as a percentage of the population. We have to address that. And frankly, it's a lot it's a lot easier to talk about a systemic racism and racial justice when everybody can feed their family and pay their rent. Uh, I think part of the racial resentment challenges that we've been having are because people are afraid. People are afraid. They're, they can't make rent. They can't afford a medical bill. If they lose their job, they're going to lose their house. We need to address that first and foremost. And I think when you make that kind of a difference in people's lives, you get all kinds of other policy options on the table. I love that. I, I absolutely, I, I love that whole cloth. Uh, but Will, what would you like to add to that? Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Kat. I mean, I think that there's, uh, that's like the first piece of it, right? That we need to be intentional about designing policy in a way that makes it clear to people how much of an assistance government can be in their lives and how effective it can be at mitigating things that are entirely outside of our control. Like, I don't know, a global pandemic, right? Um, and take responsibility for our, our you know, well-being and make sure that everyone can pay their rents and feed their family, right? Even when it's not safe for us to, you know, go outside. Um, but I think the second piece of this uh, is really learning how to not just 
divert attention away from the racial resentment backlash and, and towards class politics, but understanding how to push back on both of those narratives simultaneously. Um, and I am far from you know the foremost authority on this. Um, Ian Haney Lopez is a law professor at um, UC Berkeley. He's written a, a book about dog whistle politics. He was just on uh, Ezra Klein's podcast and gave a great discussion of this. So um, you know, I'm just sort of cribbing from his presentation here uh, to give credit where it's due. But I think learning to push back by using both that race class narrative of saying that it's not just that Donald Trump is racist, right? Because for a long time in this country, you know, it's it's a lot to ask of people if you say we are locked into, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing uh, Professor Lopez here, it, it's, it's a lot to ask of people if you're saying we are locked in a struggle between, you know, oppressive white people and people of color who are being oppressed to stand on the side of people who are being, you know, looked down upon. Right. Like, obviously, that's some that's a moral stance that I'm sure the three of us would agree with. But that's asking a lot of people. And to your point, Kat, you need to be in a position of material security to consider even making that sacrifice. But when people understand and this is what Professor Lopez's research shows, when people understand that racism is a tool of the economic elite to divide working class solidarity and destroy the social solidarity that was able to build the New Deal and to build the civil rights movement, um, and to get us closer than we are today to truly representative democracy, that is something where you're correctly identifying the villain. And it happens to be true, right? This isn't just a bill of goods we're selling people. This is the reality of our country. Um, and it helps people understand where the battle lines actually are drawn in our society. And it lets them understand that we can all come together to make sure that our families are taken care of in the ways you're talking about, Kat. I hope that you are right. And I, I honestly, I feel like the, the future of our country in many ways depends on you being right, that we are somehow able to ascend tribal politics and have people start to vote in their self-interest and their economic self-interest. And, and, and I, I suppose this is going to be an ongoing conversation. And like I say, I'm, I'm in the process of putting together a panel on this. Um, let's shift gears and talk about our state's election. There was a lot to celebrate. So we'll start with the bright spots there. Uh, Governor Inslee handily reelected. Uh, AG Bob Ferguson handily reelected. We flipped the state treasurer, uh, had big wins in 42nd, 44th, 28th LDs. Our 90 passed. That, of course, was the age appropriate sexual education bill. Chris Rakedahl retained his job, uh, reelected as superintendent of public schools. Uh, Dr. Kim Schreier held on to her seat in the 8th congressional district. Um, let's start the conversation here. Well, we were hamstrung, as we know, by COVID. Um, you were sort of overseeing and watching a lot. Of this happen. How do, how do you think the ground game did here in Washington in light of COVID? Well, I think that the results statewide are really encouraging, given what you're talking about, this unprecedented organizing environment that we were in, right? Because there is an open question, right? In 2016 to 2018, we made huge gains in the state legislature, huge gains. We're up to a 16-seat majority uh, in the state house, and I think it's a 28 to 21 um, margin in the state senate, and we've now finally evicted Steve Oban, which is <laughs> so wonderful. I'm um, very, very glad to have. And couldn't be replaced with a better. Uh, exactly. With a, with exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. So excited, have, so excited to have Twana Nobles in the state. Yeah. Um, and so for so many reasons. Um, but I think that the it's important to have some perspective here. Right. Like in just four years, we've really grown those majorities. And, you know, I think this coordinated campaign knocked something like 200 or 2 million doors or something in, in 2018, um, largely powered by a lot of indivisible volunteers, you know, coming together, being a part of the same coalition, making sure our efforts were as efficient as possible. Um, and we, in 2020, didn't lose a single seat. 
I mean, we, we lost one and gained one, but I mean, on net, we maintained all of those majorities despite not knocking a single door on the coordinator campaign. I mean, we made three and a half million phone calls, um, which is, you know, a testament to how engaged people were and helping to get out the vote. But, you know, those, those conversations just aren't the same quality as getting to talk mm-hmm. to someone in person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially in the middle of a pandemic when there's so much else going on. So I think it's, in Washington State, we continue to demonstrate that, you know, <laughs> this is the way to organize. Um, we've got some of the best field talent in the, in the country uh, here at the Washington State Democratic Party. And, you know, I was... Uh, I think very encouraged, and you've seen a lot of our state legislative leadership, you know, uh, praising the work of our volunteers to, to make sure that we, you know, we passed a lot of progressive policy, and and voters were wholeheartedly endorsing that. So, yeah, and in fact, uh, uh, Joe Fitzgibbon, uh, rep- uh, Representative Joe Fitzgibbon of the Democratic Campaign Committee, basically said he didn't feel that there was any sort of electoral backlash for any of the things that that we passed in terms of you know uh, age appropriate uh, sex education, uh, climate action, things like that, and so. Mm, I'm going to go ahead and call it a mandate. I don't know if he would, but I will. Uh, and then we mentioned Twana Nobles. Um, she was one of six black women uh, elected or reelected to the Senate. Um, and I would mention that Twana Nobles, and this is a fact that blows my freaking mind, is the only, she will be the only black member of the Senate. Um, Kat, can you just talk about the importance of this entire movement of black women uh, uh, getting into or getting reelected into the legislature? Yeah, well, first and foremost, you know, it's a little bit of a trope, but representation matters. Um, Diversity matters. If you want to get at policy and at at lawmaking that truly represents your citizens, you need to have the, the people making those laws look and act like the rest of your population. They need to have those same lived experiences. I think it was Justice Whitener in one of our town halls who said, that her experience as a black immigrant woman, as a member of the LGBTQ community, of all of those identities that she shares, the intersection of them all is one of disenfranchisement, one of being omitted, one of being not taken into account in policy. When you have lawmakers who have all those different viewpoints, you get better policy. You get a more well-rounded set of policies that can truly benefit everyone in your society. Yeah, absolutely. And I should mention, since you mentioned G. Helen Whitener, Justice G. Helen Whitener, she uh, and Raquel uh, Montoya Lewis, they, they made history by actually being elected to the uh, the state Supreme Court. Uh, Raquel Montoya Lewis is the first indigenous woman elected to the state Supreme Court. So a lot of firsts uh, going on right now. Uh, well, as you said, the Democrats are going to hold the same margins that they held before the election. We, I guess, should not see this as uh, anything other than a, a win uh, from, from what I'm hearing from you. And, and Kat, just in light of that, and this is something that you and I are going to be exploring in depth as we yeah. enter into phase two of our town hall series and we will be letting listeners know about that uh, as they as we move along uh, what are you hoping that democrats can get done in this session in terms of policy given the new dynamics and given the fact that we have some more progressive voices on board uh 
Well, the thing, once again, coming back to my wealth inequality gap hat here, I think one of the great opportunities we have right now, given that we're clearly in a financial crisis, although the state of Washington is really well positioned, right? So we're not going to have to see steep cuts. We're not going to go into an austerity budget, hopefully, as Joe Wen says. Um, but hopefully this gives us the mandate finally to address our upside down tax code here in Washington state. Uh poorest Washingtonians pay the highest percentage of their income in taxes in the state. It's inexcusable. It, it doesn't match with our values. Um, but for various reasons, we've had a hard time um, chipping away at that. So I would say now's the perfect opportunity, given a pandemic, given the economic crisis. Now, now is literally the time to do this like never before. Will, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think that um, you know when we talk about uh, addressing the tax code, we want to actually be pretty specific here, right? Like, it's not people who are currently struggling with this pandemic. It's not small business owners that we want to pay their fair share, right? We have seen that some of the largest companies in the world are in the United States, and some of their owners live right here in Seattle, uh, and they have been making record profits during this pandemic, right? Like companies like Facebook and Amazon, um, you know, are doing very well. Um, and, you know, I've been sitting on this joke in, in, in private for a long time. Um, but, you know, to anyone who doubts that something like a, a wealth tax could work here in Washington state, um, you know, I'll direct you to the fact that uh, a King County Superior Court was able to get, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos to do a full accounting of all, his, of all of his assets just a couple of months ago when he went through his divorce. So it's not like it's impossible to get these people to comply with the rule of law here. Um, so, you know, I think that there's a lot of options that are going to be on the table. Um, clearly, you know, um, that's just my opinion. It's not as if I'm, uh, in the know because the official side is very much firewalled off from, from those of us, uh, campaign hacks, um, on the, on the political side. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to see how we're going to handle that situation, but clearly that's one of the most, uh, you know, the question of how we build back from this, uh, the economic fallout of this pandemic is, is the dominant question in Olympia. Yeah, it is. And I think that's going to be the, the, the thing that, that absolutely consumes the beginning of the session. And I think a lot of things uh, in terms of what's going to be possible after that are going to be determined around how that all shakes out. Uh, and in fact, uh, Kat, you and I are in the process right now of putting together a panel uh, to talk about uh, the, the, the budget. So as, as Rachel uh, Maddow likes to say, watch this space. Um, well, I want to ask you, because you've tracked this very closely, uh, GOP Governor candidate Lauren Culp is taking a <laughs> taking a, a, play, a page out of Trump's playbook and is refusing to concede. He is now attacking his fellow de- uh, Republicans, uh, House Leader J.T. Wilcox, Secretary <laughs> of State Kim Wyman. What's going on here, man? Republicans in disarray, my yeah, friend. Yeah, exactly. There um, it is. Yeah. We love to see it. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, I think it's uh, it's going to be wonderful for these next four years to be able to to pull out this clip anytime, you know, JT Wilcox tries to get on his high horse and says that, you know, oh, they're going to have a, you know, a, a role in describing how we're going to, you know, uh, build back from this pandemic. Get out of here. I mean, like, it's not me who's saying this. It's the campaign manager for the top of your ticket who says that, you know, the reason he didn't win, of course, this is nonsense, but is that J.T. Wilcox didn't have a health care plan for him to run on or a budget plan or really any kind of plan. And, you know, it's not that they are it's not that they are Republicans by definition. That means they don't deserve a seat at the table. Right. Like I ask anyone who's known me for the last decade, I have 
been complaining for years that we need a responsible co-governing party because that's what allows us to hash out the best you know, ideas. But this is a party of no ideas. This is a party of no plans. They have not had other than a small tax holiday for businesses, which is just going to help uh, with no, by the way, no requirements that those savings are used to keep people on the payroll or, you know, uh, actually benefit the workers that they employ in any way, shape or form. Um, this is entirely the only uh, page in their playbook is, you know, let's try to loot the government for as much pos uh, uh, potential gains for our very specific donors as much as possible. And it's, you know, the same from the White House all the way down to Olympia, right? Like, it's no different. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'm happy to break some news here on your podcast, Stefan, but, uh, you know, we have been uh, one way or another attending virtually pretty much every Republican fundraiser uh, this entire campaign cycle. It's how, you know, I do my job. And uh, JT Wilcox at his annual fundraiser, uh, you know, virtually this year, the Salmon Bake, was telling his entire, uh, you know, group of attendees there that he is no more powerful than the most junior Democratic legislator, right? And I think that we should start treating him uh, like he describes himself. That goes on a T-shirt. So listen, I, I want to end where virtually where we started, um, because both of you have worked in organizing at different levels. And I, I have a concern, and I know I'm not alone in this, that with Trump out of power, uh, concern among people is going to become less, that we are going to see enthusiasm wane, we are going to see people start to peel away. Um, and, and as I said, Stacey Abrams has shown that, that one of the keys to winning is keeping the ground game going. You got to keep it going, you know, 365, 24-7. How do we keep people engaged? How do we establish, maybe the question is, how do we establish the stakes? We've talked about it here today, but how do we communicate that to our volunteers who who, who really, we, we, we need you guys to, to, to stick around. There is so much work left to be done. Kat, I'll, I'll start with you on this. Uh, well, the, the problems that we had existed before Donald Trump decided on a whim to run for office, and they will exist after we finally show him the door on January 20th, 2021. So the, the, pro the problems writ small and large exist. And now that we're activated, I think all we have to do is continue framing our conversation the way we have been, which is to hold our electeds accountable. Um, there are big and little problems that we need to work on and resolve, and I'm, I'm hopeful that people will stay engaged because of that. Will, this is something that you brought up uh, in our conversations in preparation for this, and I will just ask you, do you think that, for want of a better term, holding electeds uh, accountable is, is a sexy enough appeal uh, to keep people involved for the next two years? I and mean, th This is going to be the time when we really need people involved over these next two years because the midterms could absolutely undo yeah. whatever progress we manage to make. Yes, and we have to be aware of the fact that, especially in the House, um, a lot of states do not have um, the same sort of independent commission the way that Washington State does for redistricting, and those down-ballot losses that we had uh, this year are going to echo for the next decade, just as they did for the last decade. Um, and I think that this is something uh, that it keeps me up at night, I know it keeps the both of you up at night, but I think that, uh, honestly, the answer to your question, Stefan, um, brings me back to a story I remember from one of the countless um, Obama staffer memoirs that I've read in the last four years. Um, I think it was David Litt who talked about um, when he first started out as a field organizer in Iowa back in 2007. And one of his most reliable volunteers, and there are people like this up and down the state, you know, on both sides of the mountains, 
who worked on the coordinated campaign with our field team. Um, but she would come in and she, you know, was too, um, just in poor health, so she couldn't door-to-door canvas, so she just made phone calls for six, eight hours a day. And when he asked her one day, like, why do you do this? Like, why are you still fighting this hard? And she says, because if I don't do this, uh, I'm never going to get healthcare. She had some sort of pre-existing condition, and she was just, like, never able to get insurance. And she's just like, this is life or death for me, and this is why I do this. Um, and that might not be true for every single volunteer, but it is absolutely true for someone that every single one of our volunteers knows, right? And so I think that it's not like we need a representative democracy in this country because the vast majority of this country already does hold the opinions we need them to have in order for us to pass progressive policy. What we don't have is a truly representative form of democracy here, and that's what we're fighting for. Um, and so regardless of what issue it is that motivates you, we have about, you know, six months here to, to get this get this ship right um, for the next decade. And so there is just like this pandemic, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, victory is possible, um, but it's by no means guaranteed. And, and, you know, the arc of the universe is only going to bend if we bend it. So, yeah, I, I keep thinking about everything that is laid out, not only in the, the, the We Are Indivisible book that Lee and Ezra wrote, but, but there are a number of others that talk about these democratic reforms, and they all really go back to aligning us ultimately with some of the, the central tenets that were laid out in the founding documents of this country that we have never made good on. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the 1619 Project brings that very, very much into focus. And uh, I guess I would just say whatever it takes to get you motivated and to really believe in the path forward is whatever you need to remind yourself of on a daily basis and say, look, this is, you know, if we believe in this country, and I, I think we've all proven uh, over the last, you know, however many months that we've been working on this that we do, um, there's, there's, this is the opportunity to really make this country what it always could be. So there, I've worked very hard to end us on a happy note. How about that? How'd I do? Good, good. Did we get there? Okay, yeah, because this was... <laughs> I'm just excited I can finally, finally, finally call Will a campaign hack. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's been true for years now. Nice. <laughs> I, I wear that label of pride. Uh, no, I mean, so, but I think that there is, to, to have an optimistic and, and, and just, you know, to make it not seem like we're constantly demanding so much of everyone, right? I mean, like, this is the time when everyone is exhausted, right? And, and it, we all should be exhausted because we, you know, didn't leave anything on the field and it, look, I mean, it took everything we had, right? Um, but so, you know, next week, hopefully you're, everyone's keeping their gatherings small and, and maybe you're not actually getting a chance to see, you know, your family. But from for those of you who, who aren't gonna be able to get a chance to reconnect with people over the holidays, have some time when you catch up with them to talk to them about what you've done for the last four years. Even those mm. in your family who might not have been supportive of everything that you've done, it really does make a difference when you frame things in the way of like, this is why I did this. This is why I spent so much of my time. And it's not about team red or team blue winning and I wanted your team to lose or blah, blah, blah. It's because this is what motivated me personally to spend hours upon hours upon hours phone banking <laughs> alone in my apartment or my house um, instead of doing any number of other things, you know, that might've been, you know, your previous hobbies. So I think that that's, that's a good way to stay engaged too. Attaboy, Will. You knocked it out of the park. You did a better job closing on a high note than I did. Uh, you guys are both awesome, as always. Kat Pipkin, thank you, my friend. Glad to work with you. And, and Will Casey, thank you. Always so thankful to be here, Stephen. And happy Thanksgiving to you both, if I don't see you before then. And happy Thanksgiving to all of you uh, watching. We may or may not have a show next week. So if we don't, happy Thanksgiving. And uh, thanks for joining us, everybody. 
And that's going to do it for today. The website for our show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.